I'm John Lewis, and you're listening to 360 Degree City, a podcast where we talk to people who are working to make cities better. Our hope is that after each episode, you'll start to see your own city from a slightly different angle. Welcome to What's Next, our latest season of 360 Degree City. The COVID-19 pandemic has brought a devastating toll on our world, with over 5 million people dead from the virus at the time of this recording. That would be the equivalent of the entire population of the city of St. Petersburg, Russia, or the Canadian province of British Columbia being wiped out. As a result of this virus, since early 2020, the way we socialize, work, and move around our communities has drastically changed. As the COVID-19 virus spread throughout our towns and cities, those of us who were fortunate enough to have roofs over our heads stayed home to protect ourselves and our neighbors. Offices and businesses shut, changing many commutes from a long drive to a 30-second walk from the bedroom to the home office. Local parks transformed into more vibrant living rooms where families and friends sat in socially distant circles to celebrate birthdays, anniversaries, and graduations. Local governments became more nimble, allowing patios to pop up on the streets to help restaurants stay afloat during trying times. The buzz of international tourism quieted, allowing locals to reclaim their streets in busy tourist cities. Some have traded their small inner city apartment for larger suburban homes. COVID-19 has also revealed inequities and the deep cracks in our systems. The health and economic effects of COVID-19 have disproportionately impacted poor communities, communities of color, and developing countries. And this only begins the list of changes that have occurred. Now, as vaccination rates slowly increase and we navigate the reopening of businesses and borders, we're curious what's next for our cities. What will the post-pandemic city look like? How will COVID's impact take shape in the long term for our mobility, public spaces, private spaces, supply chains, economies, and society? So in this series, we're going to sit down with a number of folks to talk about what's next for our cities. To start us off, I sat down with Mary Rowe, President and CEO of the Canadian Urban Institute, to help set the stage for the varied impacts that COVID has had and will have on our cities. Uh, I'm Mary Rowe, and uh, I uh, lead something called the Canadian Urban Institute. I had to describe uh, my role to somebody, and I said, oh, I don't know. I, I guess I'm the lead instigator. How's that sound? Does that have a that ring sounds, to it? That sounds fun. That's what it sounds like. You know, you know, there's a wonderful <laughs> entrepreneur and writer named Lisa Gansky. I don't know if you've heard of her. And she, no. she wrote a fabulous book called The Mesh. And she's an early dot-commer and, um, uh, and has been sort of making the point about the networked economy long before everybody really realized. I mean, she was saying it when people were still going, huh? Now we mm. all I get it. And uh, she wrote this book called The Mesh. And that basically we were going to move to where horizontal systems were going to be much more mm. crucial. And she calls herself an instigator. So there you go, Lisa, All right. wherever you are, I've, I'm appropriating the term because it's a fabulous kind of, it's sort of, it's, it's sort of a, for me, it feels like a more generative version of this idea of creative disruption. Instigator sure. sounds like something a little more positive. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's great. I love it. I might uh, steal that from you as well. You can have it. Well, Lisa, thank <laughs> secondhand, you. Thank secondhand. Lisa. Yeah. Thank you, Lisa. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so obviously the 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 season, the series about is talking about what's next for our cities, and um, the CUI has obviously been doing a lot and being really active, trying to keep on top and out front of the information that's emerging about COVID in our in our cities. Mm-hmm. Um, so, wondering if you could maybe share some of the most 
significant shifts in settlement patterns that you've seen in cities uh, across Canada, recognizing and, and beyond um, recognizing that settlement patterns are, are a bit of a long, long trend, but any, any uh, stories or indicators that, uh, that you've seen about what's changing and how people are settling in our, in our cities. Yeah. You know, that Mark Twain um, prediction that rumors of my demise are highly exaggerated. I need to get the quote exactly, but his idea that, you know, people were saying he was dead when he was alive. And, you know, you know that at the very first three or four months of COVID, people said, oh, that's it, cities are dead, you know, and uh, the, the risks of congregate living, the risks of density, and also that there were just lots of people relocating into uh, more pastoral climes and that somehow that was going to spell the end of the city. And so I think we have to be so careful. We, we've tried at CUI to not um, fall into some kind of blood sport of um, prognostication. Mm-hmm. That, that to us felt kind of gratuitous. And it's because I don't think we actually know. So that's what I would say. The, there are some anecdotal things that we're going to, that you and I can talk about. Um, there's some data to support some of it. Will it stick? I don't know. Um, when when the automobile replaced horses and buggies in in urban environments, you know, did they realize that it would significantly in, uh, decrease uh, the pollution levels that methane was the, the methane that was being put into the atmosphere because of horses? Um, did they fully appreciate what the what that impact was going to be immediately? Of course not. So I think we don't really know the mm-hmm. implications. What I would say is that there's a confluence of a whole bunch of factors that have caused real estate pricing in urban areas that was already going crazy to go even crazier. And that's affected by people um, saying to themselves, if I'm going to live in an urban environment, I want to have more space around me or I want to have more amenities around me. So I'm going to move out of a small apartment with not good public amenities and I'm going if I can if I have the means that I'm going to go try to buy a house but we already knew that um, there was a shortage of or that there's a perceived shortage there's a scarcity of supply of choice what I would say we don't have a lot of choice in terms of living uh, mm-hmm. unit typologies different options to live in that would be that's to me and that that's true at right across the income scales uh, lower income higher income extraordinarily high income they get the choices they like but the rest of us don't so there's not as much choice so and you know the industry will tell you it's an it's a barriers to creating supply um, there are other people that will tell you well actually wait a second there's all sorts of supply it's just uh, being artificially, the price is being artificially inflated by investors and by um, different kinds of um, aggregate aggregation techniques for finance, which means that they can start, you know, the housing's become a commodity, a tradable commodity as opposed mm-hmm. to shelter. So it's just a big honking complicated thing. Let's just talk simply mm-hmm. anecdot- and just anecdotally qualitatively. We, I think through this experience, are being reminded about how fundamentally important place is. Place fundamentally matters. It matters where you live and it matters what's around you. So are there public spaces that are accessible to you that you feel safe in that you can get out to when your mobility is so constrained that you can't go really anywhere else and you need more space in your living environment because there are seven of you now trapped in a small environment and you need to get out. That 
and it's exposed for us that we don't, we have lots and lots and lots and lots of neighborhoods across the country that do not have adequate public space. They don't have good mm-hmm. quality at public mm-hmm. space. They don't have access to it. It's not, it wasn't safe. Um, a lot of people felt unsafe. They felt unwelcome. So that's one thing. We're going to make pay a lot more attention to those amenities. And when we're creating dense environments, um, that we make sure that there are those outdoor public amenity spaces. That's the first thing. The second thing that I think people have come to recognize is if you're going to be tethered to your home, uh, if you have a home, if you're going to be tethered to where you're sleeping, um, then you're going to need a mix of um, uh, services and connection that's available to you in your immediate proximity. And so if you're living in a part of the city where there isn't local shopping, where you were dependent on your vehicle to go to a mall somewhere and suddenly the mall's not open uh, and, the, and there's uh, restrictions in terms of the use of that, of that retail strip, um, then you had to double down and figure out, okay, this is when a local grocer would have been a good idea. This is when I needed some kind of access. If I became, if I, for instance, counted on uh, Wi-Fi access at my employer, and, and now I don't go to my employer anymore, and now I've got to figure, well, where am I going to get Wi-Fi access? Well, I'm going to try. I'm going to have to go to the library. Well, the library, of course, was shut. So suddenly, you've got people sitting on front porches of libraries trying to get Wi-Fi signals because <laughs> the librarians were smart enough to go and move their modems to the windows so people could get it. So mm-hmm. I think it's it's sharpened our awareness that we need things that proximity and adjacency is really important and mm-hmm. distribution of assets is really important. And I think that one of the poignant and I hope challenging points for anybody involved in urbanism is to really get serious about the fact that there were neighborhoods that have a lot and there are neighborhoods that did not have enough. And mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. the, uh, and so we didn't, and we weren't able I, I don't know when we're going to be able to have a tough conversation with ourselves about why certain neighborhoods fared well and certain neighborhoods did not fare well and how complicit are we, all of us, in creating those conditions that allowed some neighborhoods to be at such risk and other neighborhoods to be such at not. And also that we didn't have good data sets early enough to be able to identify these neighborhoods are at risk. And, and at risk in terms of contracting the virus, but also at risk in terms of the implications of um, being told to um, lock down at home, to stay at home, mm-hmm. to shelter mm-hmm. in place. If, you, if you're not adequately sheltered, if you, if you have intergenerational housing, uh, you know, that actually was terrible advice and uh, terrible instruction. And it created all sorts of other issues, not just proximity to the virus, but mental health challenges and how do kids do, what kind of kids access, kids don't have access to computers because there's six people in the house. And they, you know, honestly, so it's, I'm hoping that, that when you say the implications on settlement patterns, what I would rather us talk about is what are the implications in terms of how we each attach a sense of importance to the quality of our place. Mm -hmm. And can we now refocus our attention and our resources on making places as resilient as they are gonna need to be? Socially resilient, economically resilient, environmentally resilient, all those things. It's gonna, it's forced us. We were, it's like we were all sent into our own little arc. And now we gotta figure out, we're getting out of the arc now and getting back out of the water and We've got to reimagine these places and reimagine them that way. So I, what I worry about is when we talk about the question, the way it's being posed is, 
it just lends itself to people saying, well, more people are going to move out of the city and move into smaller communities and more people. You know, and I think you know, that's all true. I'm sure that to a certain extent, but, but lots of those people were probably planning to do this anyway. Mm-hmm, they just, mm-hmm. it just accelerated it. You know, uh, Eric Kleinenberg, who wrote this fabulous book, Heat Wave in the nineties about, um, it's a fabulous book about a terrible tragedy, which was a fire that swept through uh, swept through neighborhoods in Chicago. It was a, uh, well, it wasn't a fire; it was heat waves. So it was fire, but it was it was heat waves. It was called his book is called Heat Wave, and it was about this extraordinary weather event. And it in some neighborhoods people fared okay, and in some neighborhoods they really didn't. And the initial assessment was, well, mm, that was just a fluke. But he looked carefully and said, well, no, actually, the neighborhoods where there were tight social bonds and social connections and where there had been investment in this kind of infrastructure I'm just describing, where people knew who was on the third floor and who needed help getting out, um, those neighborhoods did better than the ones where people were isolated and where there were no amenities. And he called that uh, heat wave, that, that weather event, he called that um, a particle accelerator. And uh, we've had various versions of this, and I've been saying it since now, since the COVID, that these kinds of sudden traumatic events take whatever pre-existed that was a challenge and just made it, just put it on steroids. And yeah, suddenly, it's, yeah. so we've seen that on equity. We're seeing that on neighborhoods that aren't diverse. We're seeing them in where there's been poor urban design, where, where there hasn't been really good investment in public and public realm investments and amenities. So I'd rather... Rather than just get into some kind of highly sort of uh, utopian conversation about people moving to the country, I'd rather us say we know that there will be enorm- significant numbers of people coming into Canada. The immigration patterns will uh, resume. Mm-hmm. The, the intensification is going to get greater because of all the environmental implications that are going on around the world. We can see it every day. And there's going to be more and more pressure for more and more people. And they're going to come to cities and the cities are going to have to adjust to accommodate those populations. And we're going to obviously have to adjust and plan and, and put in different kinds of uh, um, structures to support larger populations who will be safe, no matter what the next challenge crisis is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think I think that's uh, the idea of you know I think two helpful frames um, to consider COVID are are just that the that COVID as an accelerant and then mm-hmm. as a as a magnifier. So mm-hmm. it, it 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 you know lays bare a lot of things that that uh, perhaps were were not uh, under the yeah, magnifying you're, you're glass. Right. You're right. That's true. It's accelerant and magnifier. So the equity mm-hmm. challenges, for instance. The fact that we've got cities that parts of cities that that don't have opportunity, don't have they're not fair. Tons of essential workers where housing is cheaper and where guess what? Amenities are fewer. Yeah, that's uh, that was magnified. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Same with the same with uh, uh, the the uh, challenge of people that uh, are unhoused. You know, you look at the uh, any any downtown across Canada right now is significantly challenged because their office workers aren't there. The street retail has suffered as a result because there's nobody coming down to have a subway at lunch. And uh, those streets now are predominantly occupied by um, people without housing or people with mental and or people with mental health challenges. Mm-hmm. And the services that they need aren't readily available either because they've been under COVID constraints as well. Mm-hmm. So all of that, as you say, magnified, much more visible 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, so I, I think, so I, the, a couple of things come to mind here. So the first is that idea of, um, you know, your point of some people may be leaving, uh, central cities and, and finding, um, more pastoral, uh, environments, <laughs> um, some people so are, you know, all there's always people that will do that, right? And for sure, for sure. And and so all that COVID has done is make them decide to do it more quickly. Because remember, mm-hmm. it's a pretty small chunk of the population that has yeah. the resources to say, "I'm I'm out of here and I'm going to go." And you know, and and it, the dilemma is that it's put enormous pressure on those small communities. That's uh, it. Yeah. Because all of a sudden now they've got their own housing crisis, and and they're either. Either the houses are being bought up by people that leave urban environments, cash out of their home and take hundreds of thousands of dollars spare and then easily buy up a small place. Or, um, I mean, ideally they go and live there or they decide to go buy three houses and turn them into Airbnbs because a bunch of urbanites want to come and have four days of holiday. And then yeah. then all of a sudden you're eating into the affordable housing supply. So it, mm-hmm. has, a, it has huge ripple effects. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose in terms of the, you know, the percentage of uh, an urban population of a, of a metropolitan area. Um, it doesn't take that many to then infiltrate those smaller communities in terms of absolute numbers to really start to, you know, to start messing with, with uh, the housing market and, and way of life and livability for, for those folks that are already there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then, so in terms of, you know, what, what you've described to what's, what was exposed during COVID, um, any any thoughts on how I guess the the distribution of resources and services, mm-hmm. um, you know, what what have we learned, and and where where should we go in terms of um, new kinds of of uh, solutions and investments in our cities based on on those learnings? Well, if you think about uh, the impacts of COVID uh, and the and the efforts to cope with COVID. So there's the medical health impacts that were absorbed by provincial governments in delivering health care, but also by community health and by public health, which are, depending on where you're in the country, they're either funded municipally or, or provincially. Um, so one of the things that you see there is that there's been, uh, in the case of municipal governments, they've had to just become extraordinary improvisers. Uh, so that, yeah, and you've heard these anecdotes as I have, I'm sure that people that were accustomed to working in the permitting department suddenly had to go out and start figuring out how to get portable washrooms into parks. You know, it, it required a kind of nimbleness uh, and, a, and a kind of, and same with the librarians suddenly became logistics coordinators, you know, to get food out. So I think there's something about us rethinking how service delivery is being uh, performed at the local level because regular people have no idea, regular people meaning you and me even, and we're in mm-hmm. this field, but we really don't know which level of government is responsible for which service. For I mean, sure. you, might, you might know, but you might yeah. not really. Uh, similarly, you don't know when you go into a government office, you don't know which level of government, order of government owns that building. Uh, there's a whole bunch of things that aren't visible to us. And so I think part of what we need to think about is when you look at the extraordinary expectations that are placed, that we place just normal times that we place on uh, local government uh, staff, they, they're, they're basically what makes life work for anybody that lives in a city. It's, it's municipal staff that allow me to function and mm-hmm. for the city to kind of coexist. And it, the city is the one order of government that doesn't have um, a sustainable revenue stream that I pay and can hold them accountable when they screw up. 
because they're too dependent on uh, transfers from the provincial and federal governments. And so when you say there's not enough housing here or the transit service sucks or whatever it is, um, it's very difficult for the municipal government to be fully accountable for that because they're waiting because they're dependent on, well, there's the uh, rapid housing initiative from uh, the Canadian government that allows us to create public to create housing and we didn't get our share or no, well, actually the province determines uh, whether we can operate transit on and those hours and whether we, you know, and it's just a convoluted mm -hmm. mess. So what I, and, and I think that through this crisis, as I suggested, I don't think municipal staff spent one second when their manager uh, phoned them on Zoom and said, you need to get out to Portage and Maine and deal with um, the the uh, homeless population that's there. You need to go and figure it out. Go out and get your, get yourself into that mix and figure out the solution. They're not saying, well, actually, it's not my jurisdiction. It actually should be the province of Manitoba. You know what I mean? They're not doing that. Yeah, so, yeah for sure. So I think we need to take this moment and learn from a crisis. Learn from what did we have to deploy and how was that, where were the mismatches? Hmm. And, and I think there have been glaring examples of where, so here's an example, for instance, you take um, the mayor of Brampton and the mayor of the municipality of which Fort Mac is a part. Remind me. It's got a great name, something dog. Wood Buffalo. Wood Buffalo. I knew it yep. was an animal. Wood Buffalo. <laughs> uh, those two mayors, I had them both talking at me about how they needed uh, they needed more authority and more capacity to declare emergencies because of the hyper-specific challenges that both of those municipalities were facing. And there they were up on national news just begging the premier and the prime minister to pay attention to their particular circumstance, like close down those warehouses or whatever the particular action was that was needed and to me that was just an extraordinary moment i you know i i think you know that i spent um six years working in new orleans after katrina and during katrina i don't know if anybody will remember this but during katrina during after katrina after the after the floods had receded but the levees had broken which was the mm -hmm. tragedy in new orleans it wasn't the storm itself it was the failure of the infrastructure and there's a moment where there's a uh, there was a local uh, a DJ named Garland Robinette who was the local DJ doing the news show, and he basically you know had gone from being a news broadcaster for an hour, for twenty minutes every hour or five minutes every mm -hmm. hour to just basically twenty four hour broadcasting, as I recall from a broom closet or something. And there was <laughs> and there was a scene, there was a moment where the mayor Ray Nagin is be he is begging. The right. national audience yeah. in the U.S. to say we have people dying here. FEMA is not here. The president has not been here. Being here, can you hear me? And I thought that when I saw those two mayors, I thought here they are in a local circumstance saying I need to have the authority to do what I need to do, and I'm being constrained. So mm -hmm. I am hopeful hopeful that we won't squander the learnings here and that we'll say to ourselves, hey, you know what? Um, the mental health and homelessness uh, crisis that we're facing, the fact that the drug supply is so contaminated, the fact that we haven't been able to incubate quickly enough local solutions for supportive housing and the services that you wrap around services that you need for people that are struggling. The fact that we have not been able to get that done at a local level because of jurisdictional bullshit. I really hope we will wake, shake ourselves up and say no more, mm -hmm. no, no, no mm -hmm. more. We've got to somehow switch 
the uh, decision making to empower at the local level that we can take action and do the necessary things that we need to do to enable the kinds of solutions that we need to find and implement. And that I think that means empowering uh, local leadership and local decision making. And it means things like changing property taxes and not having to go to the province for permission. And it means being able to make the kinds of rapid decisions that we've been making on outdoor dining, on liquor sales, on um, access to healthcare services, uh, vaccination services, all the things that we've had to, that we've just had, we've had the pandemic as a justification to say, okay, next, you know, I mean, I know people mm-hmm. are fearful that could lead to bad decision-making, but there've been all sorts of examples where it led to good and right decision-making that had would have been taking years and years and suddenly, oh yeah, we can do that in two weeks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and I, th- I think that that's, um, as, as you say, there's to not squander the learnings um, and to, you know, the, there's there's crises that are that are converging and, and some of them might not be as immediately acute as a health global pandemic. But like you say, climate change is an inc- that's accelerating mm-hmm. um, and the, the need to respond to that and the idea of uh, resilient systems, um, you yeah. know, they're, they're distributed. Um, uh, there's some redundancies in the system, those kinds of things to allow, um, true responsiveness. It's a really helpful, it's a, you know, it's a really important point. You know, we had a moment, we've had these moments, I'm much older than you, so I'm, I can remember more of them, but we have had these moments where we suddenly were able as a society to get our heads around doing something that we maybe had heard, for years and then suddenly oh shit we do have to do that so smoking Mm -hmm. you know we somehow came i remember when i mean i was raised in a family of smokers my parents started smoking my mother smoked when it was stylish she was likewise yeah they were stylish (laughs) smokers right and but now we know that smoking so our kids don't smoke right and they so so we did that i'm old enough to remember when seatbelts came in i had just got my license and i would learn i'd learned to drive in this big honking dodge buick polaro whatever it was my father had and it was a big bench seat and i remember i was told to put my seatbelt on i really resented it i thought no no i like to be able to lounge in this thing you know now now i wouldn't even think of getting into a car without seatbelts so i Mm -hmm. think we can make these shifts somebody i was on a call this morning and somebody was talking about we were able to understand by the pioneering work of a particular physician in ontario Fraser Mustard, who made the case that early child, early child support uh, interventions with young children um, will affect their the fundamental quality of their future lives. There was also a wonderful uh, physician out west, Clyde Hertzman, who also said the same thing, that there are if you can get those basic um, deter, uh, social, deter- what we call now social determinants of health, but you can get those basic conditions in place for the first 24 months or whatever period of time it is, you make an extraordinary difference in the outcome that that child, uh, will, what kind of adult it'll grow into. And so I think we have been able to do it. And I think that this is the moment for people like you and me who are in the kind of interpretation business to step back and try to see if we can look at what are the signals telling us about where the solutions need to be. Gee, we did that very effectively during COVID, mutual aid societies. Look at how Facebook and caremongering and all the different kinds of local solutions, food distribution, um, local delivery uh, and efforts when they realized that the uh, paying the fees, that the, lo- the local restaurants were going to be bankrupted by having to cope with those big delivery fees. And so, oh, 10 of them b- bound together and say, 
we're going to get a, a local delivery service or look at how suddenly parking lots and parking lanes have been repurposed for, for sort of communal sitting. So you can go and sit at a picnic table and order on your phone from six restaurants around you. I mean, these are, you know, examples that are maybe seen as trivial, but they're instructive right. because yeah. it's the same kind of way that people are cooking out of church basements, that they went to community kitchens very quickly. Um, and I, I don't want us to lose that. I don't want us to lose that kind of hyper-responsive local on the ground problem solving that a crisis requires of us. Mm -hmm. And I don't want us to get lulled back into, oh yeah, yeah. And, and uh, particularly in terms of intergovernmental affairs, if we go back into what seems to have been an acceptable posture for years, which is that municipal and provincial governments just sit back and complain that it's all the federal government or the federal government says, well, if the provinces would only step in line, like this kind of lamenting, you and I as citizens, voters, we should not tolerate that. There just can't, I just feel the excuses are, you know, I, I, we, you mm. and I elect government to be creative and to really think imaginatively about solving problems. And that includes how they work with each other. Mm -hmm. For sure. For sure. And, and I, th I think there's, there's a, there's an element to the, um, the shift that's required and that, you know, there's some evidence of it, of, of, you know, local government will go there because they have the, the, obviously the most um, uh, high level of touch point with, with their citizens. But I think yeah. there's also a level of um, being those folks have, having a lot more agency to, to do what they need to do. And yeah. then in some ways um, letting go of some um, pressures and levers that that um, allows the, the the citizens to come up with creative solutions. So the, yeah. the perhaps there's there's a lighter level of regulation of, of yeah. certain kinds of land uses and, and things like that, like like cooking in church basements or what have you, if there's probably, you know, they're, they're probably breaking some kind of rule. No, no, no. But, I'm agreeing but, with you. you know what I'm, I mean? I'm agreeing with you. We <laughs> have to kind of catch up with where the organic energy is taking us. So if, if we're going to repurpose space, which is what I think is happening. And, you know, the, the profound example of this would be parks. Parks are being repurposed by different users, including people that are living sleeping rough and, and aren't going to go mm -hmm. into a, a shelter. So you have to look at that. You have to say, well, what does that tell us about what people's aspirations are? Similarly, commercial office space is empty because there are fewer workers that are coming in. One of the projects that we're involved with is this notion of meanwhile leases where the landlord has an empty office floor or two or an empty storefront and is amenable to striking a deal with a cultural organization or not-for-profit. You know, after after 9-11, they New York City decided that they were going to allow different kinds of uh, development into lower Manhattan, including residential. And lots of people said, oh, no, no, that'll never work. Nobody wants to live down there. And, but, you know, the commercial there was a question about whether the commercial sector was going to come back down to lower Manhattan mm -hmm. in such in such high numbers. And also because it made them vulnerable that they were so concentrated in that one area. So they opened up the zoning and they opened up the permitting and they made it more possible. And sure enough, the first groups that moved in were cultural organizations and artists and then eventually uh, new residents. And it became a much more mixed neighborhood. So I think we're much healthier, much more resilient. So during Hurricane Sandy, it did much better than it did after 9-11. But I think this is what you're suggesting we have to be open to is different kinds of experimentation. And I was mm -hmm. joking with somebody about how we've all got different kinds of food and meal suppliers that are coming through Facebook and weird little informal channels, you mm. know, that somehow a neighbor suddenly, and sure enough, in, in New Orleans after Hurricane Ida, uh, I'm on Facebook because I have with folks down there because they're my old colleagues and friends. And I saw sure enough, they were feeding each other. And mm. I know that during COVID, 
people were finding all sorts of unusual ways to get food into food insecure neighborhoods and to support families that were struggling. And I just want us to continue to find ways to enable that. And that yeah. may well mean eliminating some of the dumb rules and some of the permitting and yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I've, I've said for a long time that, uh, you know, 50% of what uh, urbanists are always trying to get through sexiest design and what have you to animate space is just let people drink. <laughs> <laughs> if you could just go grab a beer and be in an ugly space, then people would go there and have a beer. Yeah. And um, it may, and it, and, and, it, and, and yeah. And, it, and what's interesting, of course, is that in communities where, where like religious communities, for instance, where they're not, where alcohol consumption, isn't it? Um, it's still the idea that just let them, yeah, you know, no, let exactly. them gather yeah. and they're going to have tea or they're going to play yeah, cards exactly. or whatever yeah. it is. But for just, sure. And, and I think that's, I think you're on to something there that, you know, uh, you know, the planners have this great phrase, uh, desire paths. That, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. they lay out things and then they watch to see how people use it and then and they don't use the path. They make their mm-hmm. own path. I love that concept. And I think that we need to just be open to new forms, new manifestations of desire paths. That's what a city is. A city is yeah. a big, fat desire path. Right. But yeah. it's uh, but that's part of what I think we as you say, we've got to, and the problem I the thing I would caution about is i think that when you've gone through a crisis like this um the tendency is you come back and exert a whole bunch of control yeah we're not gonna let that happen again yeah yeah um and there may be some areas where we do have to do that but but let's hope that it's not across the board that we go back into some kind of tightly controlled uncreative thoughtful and strategic exertion of those of those Mm -hmm. powers yeah yeah Mm -hmm. yeah for sure i it it seems you know this this conversation is really flagged for me um to go back in and and revisit some of the things that happen in in medellin um in terms of the social urbanism right where it's it's the idea that okay so now is we're now we're extra clear on what communities need some assistance and so to not try and blanket everybody with the same level of investment or skew it to the people with the most political power which is you know that's a natural natural path there's a there's a desire path for for <laughs> investment I mean, and, I then, think that, and yeah, actually this is put the, it in the places yeah, that need it the most yeah and that's the critique of a desire path would be well the people with power get to get to forge a desire path and the people without power don't but i but i want to go back to but i think an encampment is a is a really poignant desire path. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. And 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 for what it what it's <clears throat> what it tells in terms of um, the the situation of housing, health supports, all of it, um, space. You know, I, I, I was uh, someone um, said on a on a walking tour I was at in 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 Durban, South Africa. Uh, they they had said that um, invisible people. Um, gravitate to invisible spaces. And I thought that was a really <clears throat> interesting insight in terms of you know where the where the hidden yeah. spaces are intentionally or not, and, yeah. and what happens and things like that. Yeah. Well, and if you t- and we we've done some some sessions with with advocates. You know, there are strong voices on the encampment issue on both sides. Mm. And uh, when you talk to some people who have lived experience who've been in encampments, um, some will say that in the encampment they had a stronger sense of attachment and community because they had more agency and they sort of self-organized. Mm. They became a team captain on something or other. It's the same that bougie people talk about when they go to, um, uh, when they go to, uh, uh, oh God, 
John, I'm of an age where I can't remember. What's the thing in the desert? Something man. Burning man. Burning, Burning man. man. They go to Burning Man. I was going to say fireman. They go to Burning Man. <laughs> and, uh, and, they, and they basically self-organize, right? And, that's, and yep. so I think that this is where, this is where we've got to be really careful and thoughtful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we, cities are about making room for each other. That's mm-hmm. that's fundamentally what a city is about. It's about I'm I, we form a city because we form an economy together. I've got something, you've got something, and we find a way to trade, and then out of that comes all sorts of other relationships. And but it really is about making room. I make room for you. You make room for me. Hmm. I love that. That's a good reminder for uh, for a lot of folks at certain points in. Yeah. points of change in cities yeah it's like yeah. nobody's the boss of cities too and that's the other side of it nobody's the boss yeah yeah, yeah that's right that's right so even though the mayor might think they are or the big business guy might think he is mm, cities have a whole stubborn resilience as an organism i know people don't like it if you anthropomorphize cities but there is a there is a, a there is an ecology of a city that takes a lot for a city to die yeah yeah for sure for sure um, okay, well, we've uh, we've covered a great amount of territory. So I'll just uh, ask you one last question that we ask everybody on the podcast. And this will be interesting from you. Um, can you share a city that you love and why you love it? Oh, that's such an unfair question. That's like I know. That's why I love you, it. Do you how many children? <laughs> how many children do you have? I have one. Oh, that's easy. So you she's my favorite, answer. by the way. I was going to say that made that that made your answer. No wonder you like this question. Um, just a city you love. I'm not saying your favorite. Not asking to pick favorites. Just a city that you love. I'll I'll, I'll tell a sad thing then. Okay. Um, I was only there briefly for a few days, and I was young in my career, and I wasn't really even aware that my career was going to take me into cities. But I will never, ever forget being in Damascus. Hmm. I could not get over the sounds of it, the smell of it, the texture of it. I went into those markets. Anybody that's listening here who's been in a Middle Eastern market is going to be nodding away saying, oh yeah, it's not like anything else you've ever experienced. The richness of it, the sensory uh, experience of it. And I think that it is emblematic for me of what cities um, present, surprise, mm. uh, uh, stimulation that's completely new that you haven't been exposed to before, um, things that are r- richly imbued with culture, with religious tradition, with um, whatever the organic makeup of the landscape is. So the the um, the spices and the smells and the um, whatever is in the building material, whatever is used to create the the surface that you're walking on or the bed that you're sleeping on, the textiles, all this stuff. And also because Damascus historically, like many great cities, is a tr- was a trading city. So mm-hmm. the history of merchants, merchant gathering and merchant exchange, um, and then the architecture, and then the way in which it was inhab- it's inhabited by a kind of um, intense... Uh, religiously infused, culturally infused um, 
way of being, you know, and I was very young and, uh, and was there as a North American wondering what the fuck was I doing there, you know? <laughs> and, uh, uh, so I would say that, that, you know, as I, as I think about urban experience and the thing about it, that about my example is, you know, I didn't see all of Damascus. Sure. I only saw a handful of neighborhoods. And I think that's the thing that's so interesting to me is the way cities scale. So you can have an urban experience in a very small town because the agglomeration, the, the uh, mix of buildings and uses and entrepreneurs and people and creativity and infrastructure all is there in two or three blocks. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that can leave you with an, ex uh, a, a, an experience of other people and a particular spatial experience of how we connect with each other, how we're making room for each other. Um, mm -hmm. And that can happen in a city of, 22 million or a community of 3000. There, there are lots of people that duke it out with me about this and say, no, 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 no. A city has to be 10,000 people. Or, but I think the urban, but we, you know, I run the Canadian Urban Institute for a reason because I, I don't run it for this reason, but I'm appreciative that my organization's name is the Canadian Urban Institute. It's not the Canadian City Institute mm -hmm. because urban is in many ways for me about uh, collectively sharing a kind of uh, common pursuit uh, that that feeds you and feeds me, mm -hmm. and uh, and and that we have made some choices to live and work and have uh, some kind of engagement with one another based on proximity and the quality of the place, the physical place that we share. Mm -hmm, for sure. Yeah, that's 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 funny you describe it that way, because I often describe where I live in the middle of Calgary as having a small town experience in Calgary mm -hmm. because. Well, especially since COVID, but my, my life is within a one kilometer radius because yeah. just everything's here yeah. that you need, but it's that, that sort of, uh, I mean, the thing we, where we have to scattered. be careful. Yeah. Where we have to be careful is this sort of fetishizing that we, that urban planners and urbanists can do where they say, Oh, the answer is the 15 minute city or whatever, because of the, because for the last year and a half, we've kind of had to live a 15 minute city, mm -hmm. but we have to be clear that a lot of people it, the 15 minutes he doesn't do it there's just not you know that what they need isn't in that 15 minutes and the other exactly. thing is if you stuck if you stuck within your 15 minutes before you know it you're in an enclave you're not actually <laughs> yeah. you're not actually dealing with people different from you yep, and you're not sure. you're not benefiting from the real diversity and the exposure to difference that urban environments foster mm -hmm. so it, it uh, i think you know, we have to always remember that diversity and complexity are, go completely hand in hand and that the resilience of a system is dependent on both those things uh, the yep. diversity and then the complexity of them interlocking so yeah for sure for sure nice to see you thanks for asking me you too thanks for joining us and we'll see you for the next episode of this season to continue exploring what's next for our cities 360 Degree City is created by our team at Intelligent Futures. To learn more about the work we do, go to intelligentfutures.ca. I'm John Lewis. Thanks for stopping by.